Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the RSA online stage. Uh, I'm Alan Lockie. I'm head of the Future Work Centre and Associate Director uh, of the Economy, Enterprise and Manufacturing team here at the RSA. And I'm really uh, delighted to welcome to the RSA uh, Michelle Marr. Uh, Michelle is a competition lawyer. She's an author, a senior policy fellow at the UCL Centre for Law, Economics and Society, and the co-founder of the Inclusive Competition Forum. What we're really here to talk about today is Michelle's recent book, uh, Competition is Killing Us, or the subtitled How Big Business is Harming Our Society and Planet and, always important, what to do about it. Uh, it really is, I can't recommend it highly enough, it's a, it's a truly systemic look at competition law, the impact that has on democracy and society, and the norms uh, within public culture that it draws upon. But it's particularly exciting because, and this is where we uh, stray into kind of shameless RSA plug territory, so pre-warning there, but it's particularly exciting because it really operates at the intersection of the two programmatic areas of work the RSA has recently launched on my side of the fence and future work, it kind of aligns with our view that we really need to shift towards a stakeholder model of capitalism, and that requires a combination of emboldened state action and a democratization of power towards civil society organizations like trade unions. But it also aligns with our new Renewable Futures program, where we are looking towards a more circular uh, economic model, a more circular vision of capitalism uh, that means some of the externalities that Michelle writes very, very lucidly about that damage people and planets in the current free market model are priced in uh, better, measured better, and actually we start to take account of them in our behaviour and policies. So let's kick off. And Michelle's book really starts actually as a kind of a bit of a personal memoir and there's almost a kind of flashbulb memory moment, uh, Michelle, where you, your faith in capitalism, which and free market capitalism specifically, which to this point has been quite strident, I think it's fair to say, uh, almost disappears overnight as you as as you actually apprehend the Rana Plaza uh, disaster in Bangladesh. Would you like to just kind of? explain why that was such a profound moment for you and how it affected your thinking. Sure and firstly thank you for having me here it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so as I kind of describe at the beginning of the book I mean I think it's useful to know a little bit of the context of where I came to these views. Um, I was really a teenage conservative, a huge fan of Margaret Thatcher. Um, I was kind of very anti-union. Um, I saw them as, you know, really privileging the insiders and, you know, uh, creating inefficiencies. And I suppose the, the overall um, message was that I really kind of bought into these like, this idea of free markets. And I was an idealist. I genuinely believed that if we had more competition, more free markets, then we would have more of everything that we wanted, whether it was justice or sustainability or, or whatever it was. And so, I kind of followed that path and kind of quite literally and became a competition lawyer um, with the genuine belief that if we could only spread 
free market competition um, uh, more successfully around the world, then we would we would have better economy, uh, more wealth, and more shared um, prosperity and and better society. And so it's kind of fully embedded within this system of supporting um, free markets and competition. I was working as a competition lawyer um, advising uh, big corporates in the city, but I'd actually also worked um, for the regulators and you know prosecuting um, uh, big corporates. And so I've kind of seen both sides of it. And I was working on this particular um, deal in, in, in kind of fizzy drinks, uh, the fizzy drinks market starting to question you know is it really right that we all we're looking for from these companies is they're going to make their drinks as cheap as possible and at the same time um uh, uh, more or less the same time the rana plaza factory collapse happened and um that was in in dhaka bangladesh and my my family is originally from there and something about that particular event seeing people who looked exactly like me you know women crawling out of the rubble um who looked exactly like me and re really realizing that that is the sharp end of the wedge of this system of free market capitalism you know they are really at the coal face of that but but the, really those systems are there underneath the whole of um you know the capitalist system and it's kind of maybe dressed up in in more palatable um uh circumstances in the uk but actually you know it's there there are sweatshops and um that we've seen recently um revealed in the uk and and certainly the supply chains have all of these harms embedded within them so i started to really question what is the role of competition um in the economy is it really serving um the goal that it's meant to is it really providing us with the most efficient um allocation of, of resources in the economy and the best outcomes for everyone i think it's a really important questions i mean this was um you know a few years ago and um just as some of these questions around climate change are really coming to the fore we've got obviously huge questions now and um, face facing post the pandemic or as we hope to be in that phase post the pandemic yeah. um and you know there are there are enormous questions around how do we structure the economy there's a huge sense of disempowerment around the world giving rise to populist um uh, politics and i think that we have to be asking this this wonderful system um of capitalism that has all these promises um what is being delivered and is it being delivered effectively and my the goal of this book was really to look at, you know, what, why does capitalism tend to uh, concentrate wealth and power in so few hands and yet so efficiently spread its harms so widely? And is there a way to recalibrate that system so that it can be working more to our benefit? Excellent. And, you know, I think it was really interesting on that Rana Plaza example where you said that, you know, it, it it's not an accident, you know, people describe it as an accident. It was actually systemically inevitable. And then your book goes on to kind of, you know, with six myths, the six myths of competition sort of, uh, you know, articulate this, the system, the overall system drivers and the kind of norms that drive them uh, to these kind of uh, tragic but inevitable conclusions. And so I was wondering if you could, uh, without, uh, in, uh, giving too much detail so that people don't buy this very excellent book, which is always the challenge here. <laughs> I wonder if you could um, tell us a little bit about the six myths of competition. 
Sure, and I'm sure it um, you know crosses over with a lot of the work that I've seen the RSA do um, in the past few years. So I, I, none of these myths will be um, you know a, a true surprise, I think, to anybody watching. But it, I think there's there's some value in bringing them together and to understanding how they all connect. Um, so the first myth that I tackle is the myth that um, free markets are competitive. Actually, um, there's quite a lot of evidence, economic um, studies that have been done in, in recent years to show that actually free markets are not competitive. We're seeing rising levels of market concentration around the world, um, in the US, in Europe and elsewhere. And we're seeing um, th this is really in a way we can see a lot of the signs of this. So we're seeing huge um, profitability in particular sectors, rising um, markups of prices so that actually prices are not as low as they should be. So these are all signs that free markets are actually not competitive. Um, and we also have this idea that free markets are kind of naturally evolving, but actually they're constructed um, by the law and um, by the various norms and, and, and procedures that we have that govern the markets. And we can see uh, as I go through the, the remaining myths, um, how that has really propped up this system um, that allows markets to concentrate. So the second myth I deal with is um, this idea that companies compete to serve the interests of society. Um, it's true that, um, you know, in an ideal sense, uh, companies go out there and they compete to produce the most desirable products at the lowest prices, and they constantly innovate um, in order to do so. That's the ideal scenario. But there are two other very profitable ways that companies can go about um, maximizing their profits, and they can do that um, by seeking monopoly, so seeking market power that allows them to push um, their rivals out the way they can then price however they want. Um, so that's obviously an extremely attractive um, business model. And the other is to shift costs onto society. So externalities, costs that should be um, internalized within the business, instead they are able to kind of, you know, whether it's the burning of fossil fuels or the um, you know, uh, producing fizzy drinks and not having to account for the health um, and obesity and, and other problems that come from that. Um, if a company's allowed to push those um, uh, costs onto society, then they don't have to absorb them themselves. That's extra profit for them. And Part of the um, idea there is that actually, if we're trying to understand competition, we need to really understand the way that companies operate. And they have operated for the last 50 years under this uh, model or paradigm of shareholder value, which is maximizing shareholder returns. And this really focuses the mind of businesses, of, of managers, no matter how kind of well-intentioned um, they may be in terms of wanting to serve consumers, wanting to serve society, um, in the end, when it comes to it, that when incremental decisions are made, they will favor um, those, uh, those business strategies that will either push them towards monopoly or towards um, externalizing costs. So the third myth is that corporate power is benign. This really starts to engage with the neoliberal Chicago school models that have been so influential in many um, different areas and particularly in um, some regulatory and, and legal areas and hugely important in the area of antitrust or competition law. So these are the laws that are supposed to be um, governing uh, uh, co corporate power. And the idea was that corporate power is benign because markets 
self-correct. So if you were to have um, a, a monopolist, somebody who was able to corner a market, actually they would never be able to exploit that power because they would always be you know, waiting in the wings, another um, competitor. So you've got this kind of um, mythologizing of the uh, MySpace and look what happened to them. Then along came Facebook. Um, I mean, we don't need to say really dwell on the postscript, which is that nobody has come along since then, um, and that actually huge power um, has has accumulated for Facebook, both in terms of economic power and then political power and power over the whole system. And it's quite a good example to see how actually companies are incredibly able to uh, entrench their power. And so we know, you know, modern economics has taught us quite a lot about imperfect markets, how actually there are these opportunities um, for companies to entrench their power. And therefore, this myth that corporate power is benign, that it will sort itself out. Um, if we are beholden to that myth, which we have been for the last 20 or 30 years, um, then we won't take sufficiently seriously the instances of power that we see, because we will just assume that actually they're incredibly efficient. You know, Facebook is held up as a very um, uh, productive, innovative company that's providing this service generously for free. Um, what we're not seeing is all of the competition uh, that's been crushed and also all of the exploitation that's taking place in terms of harvesting our data and manipulating um, their users. Then we come to this, um, the fourth myth, which is that we already control this problem of corporate power um, with this field of, of law called antitrust or competition law. Um, what we've seen over the last few decades is through the influence of these ideas from the Chicago School, a complete kind of hands-off approach towards, uh, towards power. If you take um, tech as an example again, the biggest tech companies have been on an enormous spending, spending spree over the last uh, decade, and not a single one of their mergers has been blocked. Enormous mergers between Bayer, Monsanto, concentrating agribusiness down from you know, dozens of players. Then over the last 20 years, we've got kind of four major um, agribusiness companies, only a couple of companies that deal in farm um, uh, machinery, um, concentration on seeds, concentration on processing. We already you know in the UK, we've got four major supermarkets that have um, you know, over 70% of the market. So you can take a whole market like food and see how actually merger by merger, um, it's being increasingly concentrated. So there's the, the regulators have actually been green lighting this um, and rubber stamping the this concentration with this kind of naive idea that actually it is serving um, the economy because the, the companies come up with very convincing stories around how efficient um, these, these deals would be. But actually what we've seen is that um, the regulators are not doing their job really. They're not kind of um, taking sufficiently seriously these problems. The fifth um, myth, and we're almost at the end, <laughs> there is six, six in total. The fifth myth is that the law actually requires companies, uh, requires directors to maximize shareholder profits. Actually, the law in the UK certainly does not say that. Um, it does allow directors to um, pursue all sorts of uh, different goals, and it actually requires them to consider the interests of workers and society and so on. Unfortunately, that does not stick into the mind of, um, of any director. What sticks in the mind is the enormous power that's wielded by um, their biggest shareholders um, and you know, the, the rigors of quarterly reporting and short-termism that are embedded in that. And the, all these in, uh, mechanisms that are really there to enforce shareholder value precisely because it is not actually what the law says. So I'm sure you've done 
some work at the RSA around executive pay and around um, you know this huge imbalance between what executives get paid and people um, who work for those companies. And that's often because executives' pay is tied to the share price. They're act- they actually have become shareholders themselves. And so you have all of these mechanisms which create this idea that um, shareholder value is the law, when in fact, it's actually a choice that we make in in terms of a business norm. And then the final um, myth, which I think is really important to just touch on briefly, is this idea that we are all shareholders. So this is the common pushback that you get if you try to argue for the democratization of power and the democratization of companies, is that the public company sector, the listed sector, is a huge source of income for pensioners. And therefore, we are all shareholders. We are all kind of invested in the system. Um, you know, there was a lot of this conversation when people were talking about rapid decarbonization um, and, you know, stranded assets and the idea that we would, you know, completely change the business models of, of the big oil and gas companies. What, what do we do about the fact that pension funds are huge investors in this? Well, in that sector, we've managed to kind of turn around and the pension funds are able to leverage their power and say, actually, we don't want to be um, getting our, our future uh, funds in that way. But also the other point here is that we are not, in fact, all shareholders. It's an extremely privileged class of people who do have significant um, shareholdings, either directly or through their pensions. I mean, it's no surprise pension um, fund uh, pension ownership um, is very much tied to income ownership and income during your lifetime. So we tend to see that it's the already healthy, wealthy tend to be white, tend to be male, um, you know, uh, overrepresented in the shareholder class. So we have to understand that all the harms that I'm talking about are perpetuated against everybody and, in fact, against the poorest um, the most. And certainly the marginalised in society suffer these um, harms the most. And the benefits truly are being you know, shipped up to the, those who are already wealthy. So that was the kind of six myths really briefly. But just to kind of, I suppose... I think it's really important to understand how these different parts of the ideology that we operate under and how they interconnect. Because actually, if you pull on one thread, you find that the others will come and um, come after you. So it's it's important that we kind of look at this as a whole kind of ideological story. Exactly, and it's uh, I mean, in, in the way we approach social problems at the RSA, we try to go as broad as that to to understand the dynamism of systems. Because if you don't understand the dynamism of systems, then you just a thread and even the the best well-intentioned solutions don't have that kind of systemic uh, transformation that we that we want to see um i mean i'm really interested in in, in a lot that you say that obviously i think probably come to big tech at some point because they're, they're so wrapped up in this story and it, it's really a kind of acceleration of everything you, you said and also one of the hardest uh challenges to crack but first let's talk a little bit about your solution which you describe as stakeholder antitrust Uh, what what does that mean and and, and can you break it down for us who are perhaps not as versed in competition laws as yourself sure um i've actually started to use a framing i didn't use it in the book um i wish i had but it's to think about the potential ways that we can counter um corporate power and that's the real kind of focus here is how do you challenge corporate power and structures and systems of corporate power Um, And I can break it down into three buckets. So um, that's to disperse the power, to democratize the power or to dissolve it. And so dispersing the power is using the tools that we already have um, at our disposal to to hold 
corporate power to account or to even remove it. So um, we have powers under competition and antitrust law to break up companies, to block more mergers, to take be much more skeptical around um, the stories that companies are encouraged to tell um, that, that allow them to persuade um, authorities to uh, approve their mergers. We should be much more cynical about that. We should look at things like right now, the authorities have to prove that a merger is harmful in order to block it. Instead, the biggest companies should have to prove that their merger is beneficial to the public interest. So all of these kind of procedural ways of making sure that we are really tackling corporate power as it is being formed. Um, the second bucket is democratizing power. Now, this looks at um, two kind of uh, particular ways of doing this. One is by democratizing the corporation or the firm itself. So this could be through um, uh, privileging or raising up stakeholders within the decision-making um, structures. So by putting stakeholders on boards, by looking at you know workers on boards has been one popular um, avenue, but you could massively broaden that out. You know, civil society should have maybe a role on certain boards. Um, you know, why aren't there um, musicians on the board of Spotify or drivers on the board of Uber? Um, this should be a natural um, way that a company structures its decision-making, that actually those that are most impacted and that actually have um, you know, useful information um, to share in terms of how a company should operate, they should have um, some say. But the other side of democratization is really outside the firm. Um, so this is looking at creating infrastructure that allows for the collective action of those that are currently unable to, to counter corporate power. So that alternative business models, whether it's cooperatives or other or other alternatives. Um, it's also unionization. I kind of see that as being inside and outside the firm because it's also about kind of unionization at large. Um, so in terms of like the whole, whole of industry um, and, and just other structures that enable um, that collective action. And in terms of competition law, that may mean that competition law, which is generally um, uh, hostile towards cooperation may actually need to step out of the way. So we see um, in the gig economy sector, there are tensions between um, individual gig economy workers um, collectively bargaining with Uber or Deliveroo or whoever it is. Um, if they were to do so, currently they would be considered an illegal cartel because the tech companies have been very successful in arguing that these workers are not actually workers or um, employees, they are independent businesses. So that would mean that they are independent businesses getting together and collectively fixing the price that they charge Uber for their services. That would be a cartel. So we need to think about how we can sensibly um, encourage the types of cooperation that would actually bring benefits to the economy, whilst actually using the powers of competition law, not against the small, but against the largest concentrations of power. And then the third bucket is to dissolve power. So this is to really challenge the idea that companies get to exist in perpetuity um, no matter what. Companies exist as a creature of the state. They are created um, by the state and um, at, our, at the pleasure of the state. And they get all sorts of benefits for that. They get to have limited liability. They get to have corporate tax um, as opposed to income tax. And um, with those privileges should come a public responsibility. In fact, that was the old model, um, you know, when companies were first um, created in the 17th century. And, you know, I'm not saying we go back to all of those models because, you know, they're hugely nepotistic. We're, we're very comfortable with them. 
<laughs> you had to well I don't know you had to be like friends with the queen in order to to get a a charter um so we might not want to replicate those models but certainly I think that if a company repeatedly breaches the public interest it should be wound up or at least there should be the threat of winding up um we do actually have already have that law in the UK um uh, under an obscure provision on in, in the insolvency act which allows for the secretary of state to petition the court for uh, winding up in the public interest, but it's hardly ever used. And this is because there's a general idea of the sanctity of private property and the um, the idea that it's just kind of sacrilege to wind up a company, when actually if a company is breaching the public interest and shows no make, making no effort to remedy that, then this company has outlasted its public use. And if nothing else, we should at least take some stance which kind of says, you know, companies do exist for the public um, benefit and they get privileges and that's that's because they are huge, you know, wealth creators. And I'm this is certainly not an anti-business um idea. It's rather about allowing the sharing and 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 kind of dispersal of power. And this is one of the methods that might do that. So we've got these kind of three buckets of of um dispersing, democratizing, and dissolving power, which are all different ways to challenge corporate power. Two days ago, I might have asked a question about how will Philip Green feel about that. <laughs> yeah. is taking that into its own invisible hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to to ask a little bit actually, and it, I think there's a there's an evolution of your your thinking there a little bit, which, is, which gets us the, the question, and it's a question that we've really wrestled with and haven't resolved in our own work on kind of stakeholder models for the future of work, which is a kind of a very old trade union argument against policies like the minimum wage would be that actually when the state and legislation steps into a space, it enfeebles the civil society response. Mm. And then actually you looked at some Scandinavian countries and there is no minimum wage and they also have incredibly high wages because that is that is the role of strong trade unions. Do you see any tension in... And as I say, we've wrestled with this too. But do you see any tension in having such a strong legislative or state response and at the same time trying to democratise uh, and, and, and grow and strengthen civil society? Well, I think that we need to um, kind of think about the different roles of the state, because in this case, um, the primary structure of this is the state as a responder. So, you know, this would be empower civil society, give civil society the... Um, platform the legal rights, um, the exemptions if needed in order to act collectively. And then if civil society brings a complaint, take that seriously, because there's a huge issue around um, the capture of regulatory bodies by big business, precisely because this field has been so um, kind of hidden behind technocratic walls like this has not been seen as a political issue but actually it centrally is a political issue the um, coordination of the whole economy and the who gets to allocate resources who gets to have power and so I think that there is clearly um, you know attention in how you would implement this you know you want to make sure that you are both empowering and not kind of overstepping the mark as you you describe. I think it's an interesting problem um, to think about, but I do think that there are kind of incremental first steps that need to be taken before maybe you iron out the kind of ideal version of it. And I think at the very at the very beginning, because the corporate um, 
because the balance of power is so in favor of, of the corporate sector, you need to empower both government and civil society in order to kind of create a bit more balance. And then you might kind of shift the balance between civil society and, and the state. But currently it's so shifted in, in favor of um, corporate power that actually both need to be emboldened um, in order to act. And that's exactly why we, <laughs> we support U UBI at the same time as calling for stronger worker voice. Uh, right. yeah. So it is, it is, it's a challenge, but it is a challenge. Um, I, I mean, I want to, to to spend a little bit of time talking perhaps about big tech. And maybe let's let's look at the Facebook example you raised. How would a reformed antitrust system look at a, a problem like Facebook where, you know, you write a lot in your book about the kind of uh, the situation where some corporations not just get too big to fail, but get too important to fail. Mm. Something we had with the banks in 2008 and, and Facebook and, and, and Twitter and social media generally is now absolutely and almost unavoidably uh, the kind of public forum for, for a lot of democracy. And at the same time, people don't like Facebook in polling, but they also definitely don't want it taken away. Mm. And kind of nationalisation or any kind of response like that seems to be very, very dangerous. You don't want a lot of some of this in state hands, it would massively alter kind of democratic incentives. So mm. it feels to me like one of the hardest challenges, but let's, <laughs> how, how would you, how would you respond to it? Well, I, I think that one of the things we have to understand when we're looking at um, the tech companies is that there's been this kind of narrative of inevitability. Like this is the only way the world can be. If you want social media, if you want to be able to share photos of cats with your friends, this is the only way. You have to give up all your privacy. You have to give us all your data because this service just won't work. And I think that we've bought into that and it was great. There was like a whole honeymoon period that we all had where we just kind of like threw all our stuff yeah. um, up there. And I certainly did. Facebook, I think, came out when I was in my middle year at uni. And Me too. Yeah, and it <laughs> was the same like, age. <laughs> it was, exact, it was like this exact thing where you were like, wow, this is so easy. It's, it's brilliant. Um, no downside. But I think that one of the things that we need to be able to do when we're thinking about structurally dealing with a company like Facebook is, of course, there are, you know, all of the democratization um, models I've described, you know, that we can have a better oversight board and you can certainly do things like unwind some of the mergers, their merger with WhatsApp, their merger with Instagram. Um, you know, they will say it's very hard, but actually it's not that hard to um, to break up companies. But there are those kind of like very... Um, yeah, structural things that you can do, but there's other things that you can do to completely open up the market. So there are things that to do with data sharing and interoperability um, that would effectively allow other competitors to come to come onto the scene. Currently, now you know if you're a venture capitalist, you're not going to. They, you know, venture capitalists say openly they will not invest in a company that is trying to be the next Facebook because who would do that? Who's going to throw money at that? Because you know. As Mark Zuckerberg said in his own testimony um, before Congress a, a couple of months ago, you know, they basically find companies that are doing things that they like. And if they can't acquire them, then they just clone the product and then crush the rivals. So, I mean, it's just that you need to be able to prevent that from happening so that, you know, yes, it would be highly problematic potentially for the state to, you know, nationalize Facebook. I don't even know how that would happen if you weren't the American state, for example. So what would 
what could you even do in Europe? But now, in some ways, would be the scariest state to do it as well because well, exactly hard, hard power too. Precisely, but so but you could imagine that there might be public alternatives, um, you know, publicly funded alternatives, um, but also more than that actually opening up the doors to the data, which is actually the main driving engine for the size of these companies, so that other private companies could actually come along, maybe with better data protection, actually offering um, alternative models so that I, you know, right now as a non-technical person, it's hard for me to imagine a version of the internet that is not funded by online ads and parasitic on my data. But it is possible, I've been told, and we just need to, you know, you need to kind of withhold the power of the current incumbents enough so that there is enough space for those other things to come in. And you, I hope that in 20 years time, we will look back at this phase and think, oh, that was very naive of us. But luckily, we've got out of that, that system now. And we'll be talking about types of technologies that we can't even imagine right now. I think it's, I mean, I think it's a really... It's a really fascinating question. I don't know who's got answers to it, but this, this idea of a, of a different internet mm. and the, what, what, the, what, what the kind of Western response is, because there is a different model for the internet, which, which has just power in, in certain geopolitical circles, and it's probably not one we would like to go down, and that's, that's in China. But let's, <laughs> let's probably move on from that. I wanted to ask you a kind of uh, an interesting, well, a, a kind of personal question, which is, the book is in, incredibly forensic in its uh, approach to flaws of competition and, and, and the, the, the challenges that we have. Um, do you still believe in capitalism? I mean, do you, is it is it something that you still believe is is salvageable? Um, is there still some part of uh, your, your your Thatcherite history that's just needs to be expunged or, 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 or <laughs> is it really worth saving here? So um, the other day I was talking to somebody who um, who uh, does a lot of work in change making and I, they were asking me, you know, what kind of change maker am I? And um, I'm very reluctant change maker. You know, the kind of campaigning work that I'm doing around corporate power, this is not what I set out to do. I set out to firmly work within the system um, and what I realized the word that they use to describe me is a whistleblower and it's an interesting idea but it's like being inside the system and knowing it enough so that you can identify what those flaws are because actually I think from the outside firstly a lot of people don't know that we have antitrust or competition laws that are meant to be dealing with um, a lot of these problems so somebody needs to point that out but also, you know, why, how, you know, how it is that we've gotten to this kind of Kafka-esque double think way of thinking that um, we can't see, you know, a, whereas a layperson would easily be able to identify Facebook or Amazon as a monopoly, a competition lawyer would really struggle to do that. So, you know, uh, being able to identify that. And I think to answer the kind of question, I... I do believe that there are ways that we can mitigate against the harms of capitalism. I wouldn't say that I'm a capitalist, but I wouldn't say that I'm an anti-capitalist. I'm not vested in the idea of breaking down capitalism, but I do think that if, if once we've tried all of these things to mitigate it, I'm not also not tied to the idea of capitalism. If there is a, a better model, um, then, then let's do it. But I suppose I don't think that we're going to even be able to explore other models unless we create space within the capitalist system so that um, 
so that non-capitalist ways of, of operating have some space to flourish. And some of those might be um, you know, anti-capitalist in the sense of like coming up against capitalism um, and not necessarily like challenging capitalism at some fundamental level. But I think of something like cooperative industry, like that is still free market enterprise, but it's it's um, enterprises that have decided to structure themselves in such a way to better share wealth and power within them. So is that anti-capitalist? I don't know. I think it kind of straddles these different ideas because if you had cooperatives at, at a kind of grand level at the whole of the economy, then maybe that would be anti-capitalist. But I can completely imagine a, a, a scenario where you have both. And I just think that we need more space to explore those other possibilities. This is my way of completely getting away around the answer, <laughs> around actually asking the question, because I think it's yeah, an incredibly difficult one to answer. It was, yeah, I think it was sensibly a third way, but uh, <laughs> I, I know people who would say that the uh, the key to capitalism success is that you can be um, a socialist in capitalism, but you can't be a capitalist in a socialist society. Hmm. So um, on that, I think I'm gonna on that kind of slightly weird <laughs> thought. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna bring this to a close. It's been absolutely fascinating. I really feel truly mean we could have gone on all day, but that's I'm afraid all we've got time for in the RSA online main stage today. Michelle, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks for taking your time to to, to talk to us today. Uh, thanks so been, much, Alan. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Uh, if you want to continue the conversation online, the hashtag is hashtag RSA competition. As I said, the book is fantastic. Uh, Competition is Killing Us. It's on our website if you want to buy uh, a copy from there. Uh, it really, really operates, uh, really, really kind of channels the sort of uh, thinking and action and impact that we're trying to have at the RSA as well. At the moment, uh, you'll find it on our website and you can find much more info, of course, on upcoming RSA events, our podcasts, latest news from our policy research teams and from our global fellowship network. Thanks very much for everyone. It's been a fantastic conversation. Once again, thanks, Michelle, and thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.